would you call your topic exciting or not? I mean, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. Well, Are I you mean, not excited to talk about your topic? Because that's embarrassing. <laughs> no, it's embarrassing that I am excited to talk about my topic is basically oh. the gist of it because it's it's the history of glass. So if <laughs> so, okay. if you want to if you want to start with something better than the history of glass, you go for do it. Do you want to start with the history of glass, or do you want to end on the history of glass? I'm asking you because I think most people probably would want to end on the history of glass so they don't have to listen to the history of glass oh my god <laughs> i don't care you pick if you would if you're so excited you'd like to talk first that's totally fine with me i don't care all right everybody either then... way i have to sit through the history of glass. <laughs> that's true okay well <laughs> it sounds like we've probably got everybody revved up and excited for the history of glass so i'll just take it i'll just take it away yeah, let's go. I'm pumped. Welcome to Hysterical History, where we sit down, talk about our favorite stories, and of course, laugh. Your hosts are Whitley Trussler and Emily Gummery. All right, let's get this show started. I'm going to start with the components of glass. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me you have a science degree without telling me you have a science degree. <laughs> Well, I'm going to, I have the, the chemical formulas and stuff written out too, but I'm obviously not going to share those because nobody cares. The chemical <laughs> formulas. We 100, I will get in to all of our accounts later and we'll lose people. Like people <laughs> will unfollow us if you give them the chemical formulas. So I won't. So basically there's three components of glass traditionally. So sand, limestone, and sodium carbonate. Ooh, oh, very exciting. I know. <laughs> okay, even though this is like maybe a quote unquote boring topic, I think you're just going to make fun of it the whole time and it will become funny. So it, it might work out. Okay. <laughs> I feel like you're going to make fun of yourself. You've already started. So yeah, I have right. funny. I mean, we're funny people. If people think otherwise, I don't. I mean, why are you listening? Also, like maybe we're not friends because we're <laughs> funny people. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to do the history of glass is that we were walking at the park and I looked down at a giant sheet of ice and like somebody took a big like sheet of it and like slammed it. So it looked like broken glass on the ground. And I was like, oh, I wonder if like this was the inspiration. Was this the inspo for glass? It wasn't, but that's why I did this research. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> So I'm like picturing you like stopped on the sidewalk and like, you know, how in the movies where it's like, doo -doo 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 -doo, and it like the next scene is like you in a different place, just hard thinking about glass. Like it was, yeah. Except Maggie was walking with me and she's like, what are you doing? Fair. So, so I said, I'm thinking about the origins of glass. And she said, come on, let's go. She said, this is not a romantic walk in the park. It was definitely not. Um, but so, yeah, that's why I looked it up. I just thought that was good level setting for why I wanted to look up the history of glass. I feel like that needed explained. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> so I didn't know this, but obsidian, I didn't know it's like classified as a glass. 
So, <clears throat> sorry, we're in the early history of glass now. Um, okay, okay. A blast from the glass, some might say. Get out of here. <laughs> and now my story. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, yeah, obsidian was the first naturally occurring volcanic glass, which we know was used to fashion things like weapons and jewelry. And we actually didn't have man-made glass until around... 3500 BCE. Mm. Like, I know that was like yesterday, right? So, <laughs> okay. This surfaces in <laughs> Eastern Mesopotamia. I crawled out of my cave yesterday. Now I have a home. <laughs> exactly. It, it moves fast. Um, so, it was discovered in Mesopotamia, which is now current day Iraq and Syria, um, and also Egypt. And it was used for things like jewelry and decor. But early glass is not what we think about as modern day glass. So early glass was not transparent. So it was actually a solid color and they would saturate it with different colorful dyes, um, which makes sense. Cause at this point they weren't using it for like windows or anything. It was purely for like jewelry and house decor and that kind of stuff. So at this point in time, they use the ash of desert plants to make glass. Um, so that's going back to the big three uh, chemicals in glass. Uh, as we mentioned, the sand, the limestone, and the sodium carbonate. So, Ooh. oh, I know. So then we go all the way from this 3500 BCE Apparently, nobody was like interested in going further with glass from then until the first century AD. I mean, because, why would you? yeah, I mean, it's jewelry great on its own. Vases. Like, what else do you need? A vase. A vase. <laughs> so, the Roman Empire was the first really to start refining glass and doing it at scale. So, the Syrians, which was once part of Mesopotamia where glass was initially discovered, they introduced glass blowing where you like blow air through the pipe to make the big glass bubbles. Oh, I think that's so cool. It is very cool. They to have watch. a whole TV show about it on Netflix. You should watch it. Oh, I, I saw that and I was going to watch it. And um, I, I was scrolling while we were eating dinner. And Maggie was like, we're not watching that. And I was like, OK, add to yeah. watch list. Before we moved in together, Nihilus forced me to watch it. It was actually really interesting. I was actually very happy that he made me watch it because it was cool. Well, if you love that, you're going to love the rest of this story because mm. I'm going to talk about how they made sheets glass from spheres. Mm. Ooh, mm. it's magic. So in rome in the first century a.d they started these production facilities which contained pretty large furnaces and these big tanks where they would pour the molten glass and then they would facilitate glass broken down into chunks to smaller facilities where they could like melt them down more and then make whatever smaller unit things they wanted to make out of them so initially they used vases or they use the glass to make vases cups pitchers just basically all kinds of stuff to drink liquids i that maybe that's all they did i don't know what else is there to do in first century ad um but the glass at this point <laughs> what 
just keep going. <laughs> I love how like I can tell you're talking about this and you're panicked. It's boring. So you keep trying to add in like these side notes. And just... I just feel like I've, <laughs> I really need to explain why I'm excited about glass. But it's just, just not the, coming through. Why, like, what else would you do in first century? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. <clears throat> so anyways, the glass to hold said liquids in first century AD, it was thick, heavily colored, and not very translucent. And it required a lot of polishing. So initially, it was very expensive. Only wealthy people could afford to have cups. It always so, starts with the rich. It does. So... Through these little chunks of glass, the Romans actually introduced window panes. Um, but I'll have to share a picture of the windows that they had because you can't see through them because it's just the glass quality is so bad that the the only reason they created it was so they could quit covering their windows with paper and shield from the outside elements a little better. And let it light. Ask like, was it just for shielding and like uh, bugs and stuff like that? Yeah, but their their actual biggest thing was letting light in to buildings because paper obviously isn't translucent, and obviously you know there's no electricity in first century AD. So I know. So uh, daylight was pretty important. Two things. I know. Crazy. So. Yeah, uh, and then uh, this next topic is called Here Comes the Christians, because of course. <laughs> this is the same category as my worser and worser. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's true. I want to get a shirt separate with names. <laughs> I want to get a shirt that says Here Comes the Christians on it. Um, and then on the back, it says it got worser and worser. <laughs> <laughs> so... <clears throat> In the fourth century, Christianity started spreading throughout Europe, and it is actually directly related to the expansion of glass technology spreading, um, and especially stained glass. Um, shocker, there's a lot of stained glass in churches. So, Wait, so are you saying that glass spread because of Christianity or Christianity spread because of glass? <laughs> Because <laughs> I'm not quite sure what you. I wish it was the latter. Said it. <laughs> All hail the glass. <laughs> no, Christianity spread glass making. Gotcha. That's what I assumed, but I yes. was like, maybe I. I think like my brain is not working, and I was like, I'm not <laughs> no. sure what she's saying. Sorry. <laughs> Don't apologize. It's me. My it's my brain. So stained glass becomes a really big art form when Christianity starts to take hold. And one of the oldest known pieces of colored glass used in a window is, it was found at St. Paul's Monastery in England, which was founded in 686 AD. Ooh. Fancy. So, basically we just all stand stained glass uh, for the next several centuries. So like, they started producing it in Arabia, in the Middle East, in the 8th century, and then the Gothic period, um, which is the 13th and 14th centuries, not the first 10 years of the 2000s, just so we're all clear. Gothic period. 
<laughs> Shut up. <laughs> well, that's the em- that's emo. That's You're right, not, emo. That was not gothic. That was, it's easy that was to get emo. it's easy to get confused. So yeah. I just needed to make sure our listeners knew what yeah. I was talking about. I should have you should have told me I would have, you know, worn my thick eyeliner. Oh, missed opportunity. Yeah. Um so during this gothic period, not emo period, stained glass windows take on even more of a center stage in cathedral designs because we just get real elaborate at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the stained glass was primarily a Catholic art form, <laughs> which I thought you would appreciate this. This has like not that much to do with the story, but I just knew you'd like it because it has to do with King Henry VIII. <laughs> so <laughs> um, stained glass was primarily a Catholic art form but most of that precious art form was destroyed during the 1600s by the order of King Henry VIII after he broke up with the church. Because <laughs> they so wouldn't just, let him get a divorce. <laughs> so I just knew you'd like that. Oh my God. <laughs> we should do an episode on the breakup of church. I and... can't stand his ass. <laughs> we could literally do probably like at least 10 episodes on different things going on with King Henry. Like he 100%. had a lot going on, even just outside all of his wives. Yeah. Like he breaking up mess. with the church and destroying uh, precious stained glass art forms. Yes, he's a mess. <laughs> um, so now we're getting into what this ice reminded me of at the park is our glass that we have today. So like the clear, you can see through it used in windows. I would hope that's what ice made you think of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just trying to tie together the intro. To I was the, looking where we at dirt ice and then I thought of glass. <laughs> <laughs> it was brown. I couldn't see through it. A dog had walked by right before me. <laughs> Um, but we have the first transparent window glass manufactured in Britain in the early 17th century. So this is called broadsheet glass. Ooh. So basically a giant balloon of glass was blown and then both ends were removed, leaving a cylinder to be split. So they would then split it and then flatten it to make sheet glass. So before this mm. point in time, glass was like, you could it really only made in small quantities. Um, so like it wasn't really a function yet. I mean, you didn't really need a giant sheet of glass for anything when you can't see through it. So there, but at this time, large sheets of glass were not yet made for windows. So that's why when you see old glass windows that have all the window panes like all the crossbars that's Mm -hmm. that's why because like they weren't yet making giant sheets of glass for that could hold up and be in windows like as a singular Mm -hmm. piece of glass so because it just wasn't strong enough at that point um gotcha so that when you see that it's just a really old window um with the panes gotcha And then this is where I got a little bit confused because these sound like basically the same type of glass, but they're not. Okay. So crown glass was introduced to Britain in 1674, which is a German technique from the 11th century 
perfected by France in the 13th century, but it took so long for Britain to do it because it was a trade secret in France for centuries. Like they just didn't want anybody else to use this glass blowing well, technique. Especially Britain. Yeah. Get out of here, Britain. <laughs> so here, oh, this is the difference. Now that I'm reading it over, it's much more clear. <laughs> Every week, I feel like I think to myself, did someone else write these notes or did Whitley? Because you always say something <laughs> along the lines of like, oh, I didn't know this was in here. <laughs> like, how do you not know if you wrote them? <laughs> well, it's just maybe I think I'm worse at research than I really am. And then I reread them and they make sense. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so crown glass is made using a sphere of molten glass instead of a cylinder that's around nine mm. pounds it's blown into a giant bubble and then they pierce it and then they spin it into a circular sheet like a flat circular sheet that's mm. five feet in di diameter okay and then when that cooled down they would cut it into panes so if you see really bad imperfections or ripples in glass mm. Um, that kind of indicates that it's older glass in a home. Um, hmm. But this crown glass, even though it's very, very similar to broadsheet, it's still a little bit finer and clearer than the broadsheet glass. So it's a small oh. step in the improvement of glass. Okay. And I thought this was fun. In 1903. <laughs> I'm waiting. I know. <laughs> 1903. French chemist. Edouard Benedictus made the accidental discovery of laminated glass because he dropped his glass flask, which was coated in a plastic cellulose nitrate on the floor and it shattered, but it didn't break. Ooh, so fun. I know. Oh my God. <laughs> no, so, actually, for real. Like, all jokes aside, that's kind of cool. It, it is pretty cool. But why was it covered in it? <laughs> that I could not tell you. <laughs> For some reason, it was just coated in plastic. Um, but since this discovery, now they insert a thin plastic film between two sheets of glass to make windows, mm. which I thought was pretty cool. And it is now the required standard glass for windshields since 1937. So like, this is the type Ooh. of glass you have on your windshield as required. Ooh. Okay. Um, and actually, in the early 1900s, they didn't even use it initially for windshield glass. So people were just driving around. And I found this fact that accidents, when it happened, shattered glass was the most severe injury causer. Did that make sense? It caused the most severe injuries, like, because the glass was just... So... They also had barely any seatbelts, so I'm sure a lot of them well, were going through the glass. Yeah, probably. Um, but yeah, they didn't really... It, became a standard in cars for Ford in 1919. So there was a big like gap between when they okay, started Henry. using that glass. Yeah, get it, Henry. <laughs> um, and then there's this other like quick thing called drawing glass, which was introduced in 1904. It's just another way to make sheet glass. Uh, it's not really that exciting. It basically just rolled it out into a flat sheet using water-cooled rollers. Gotcha. Um, 
And then modern day glass is called float glass. And it was discovered Ooh. in 1959 by Alistair Pilkington. And basically glass is just poured into a tin and it floats in the tin. Um, and then it spreads out, forms a level surface, and it allows for very large panes of distortion-free glass to be made. Thank so that's you. what we have today. So that was the history of glass, question mark. <laughs> why is it a question mark? I don't know why I used that tone when I said the history of glass. <laughs> no, that was a cool like rundown. I liked that. Oh, I forgot such a cool thing. Just do it. <laughs> leave all this in. Please, God, leave okay, all this sorry. in. Okay, sorry. In World War II, I just, like the World Wars, laminated glass was the early form of bulletproof glass. So that glass that's like now in windshields and windows, like the plastic frame, it was yeah. used in World War I plain windshields and in the goggles of gas masks. Okay. Now I'm done. <laughs> Final answer. Are you sure? Yeah. You're not going to pull out oh, oh, another world war. Oh, shoot. Pack? I have three more pages. No, I'm just Shut kidding. <laughs> I love how you're like, I just love the world wars because I literally just thought to myself like, oh, that's good because we're about to have a third one. Oh. <laughs> what could you be talking about, Emily? I, I don't no know, idea. Whitley. Well, Emily, our listeners should go back. One episode? Two episodes? One. That was last week. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, to when I did the back story. I know. <laughs> I just have no sense of time anymore. But anyways, y'all, we did a story on Crimea and Russia. So that'd be helpful context for anybody who's interested. I feel like everything that happened yesterday and today, we have to do another one. Don't tempt me. I will. We, all oh, right i'm tempted i will i'll do it or you could do tiktok series on it oh that's a good idea we need more tiktok uh, yeah we do whatchamacallit content all right well the time is here whitley to start our sprinkle of royal mistresses oh i knew it <laughs> and today because this is I felt like I needed to start with her because she's the one that started the whole thing. We're going to talk about Madame de Pompadour. Oh, That's wait, you mentioned start. this person. Mm -hmm. She's the one that I watched on Doctor Who, or they like talked about Doctor Who that made me start this whole thing. So I figured what better way to start this off than to start with her. Start with a fan favorite. Yes. So her, like, <clears throat> um, her name and I'm just going to start off by saying like this whole episode is brought to you by howtopronounce.com uh, because I tried really hard not to sound like an uneducated American, um, but I am also an uneducated American when it comes to saying French words. So I apologize in advance, like, please, please, please don't hate me. So now that that's out of the way, her name is... Jean-Antoinette Poisson. <gasps> that was really good. Thank you. She was born December 29th, 1721. Um, her biological father 
and the note, like what I was reading about her was very confusing. So no one is sure who her biological father is. <laughs> her father passed away when she was young, like who every, like who her mother was married to, uh, Mr. Poisson. Um, but, and he was either a rich financer or a tax collector. But there's also talk that um, her, and we'll talk about it more, but she gets a legal guardian um, who I, my understanding is he, he doesn't marry her mother, but helps her, which kind of leads me to believe like maybe he is her real father. I'm not sure. Um, But (sighs) that's beside the point. Point of the story, this mini story we're talking about is we don't really know who her, her real biological father is, but he's either a rich financer or a tax collector. Either way, like a good place to be in French society at this time. He's got some money. Yeah. So at age five, five, single five, she was sent to receive the finest education in an um, Ursuline content, uh, convent. That was not supposed to say content. Convent in Poissy. She was admired for her wit and her charm, as one would be at five. Um, but she returns home at nine. So I'm like, okay, like, why didn't I get an education from five to nine and then get to go home? Um, where her mother promptly took her to a fortune teller so i'm like interesting timeline so far okay uh the fortune teller is madame de lebon uh she told the two you know women that jean would one day reign over the heart of a king and you know shadowing you know how we get though like just people in general this could be true or it could have became true because they heard this. You know what I mean? Like they could have put more and we're going to talk about it, but they put a lot of emphasis on just like molding her. And it makes me wonder like if they wouldn't have heard this from a fortune teller and they would have maybe not molded her as much as they did, like would she still have become a royal mistress? That's the question of today. Yeah. What was her original career goal? And I will tell you, we don't know the answer. I, I really don't know what the answer is because they did so much with her. But anyway, so because of this, she became known as Renette, which is little queen. And like I said, groomed to become, literally they groomed her to become mistress of Louis the 15th. Like specifically that specifically Louis the 15th. Yes. I wish people could see your face. I mean, based on the intro though, the life of a mistress is pretty like good. If you're like, yeah, I mean, on the good side, if I was alive in the 1700s, I would 100% also groom my daughter to become a mistress of the King, but well, we'll get there. So (laughs) So to become the best mistress and to groom someone, uh, this requires getting the best teachers, 
um, so that she can be taught dancing, drawing, painting, engraving, theater, the arts, and how to memorize entire plays. So then she can, so she can then move on to like participate in the play. Oh, so this she's getting all, a pretty comprehensive education. And this was all brought to her house. Like these teachers oh. were brought to her house. She did not have to leave. Um, and the legal guardian, his name is uh, Tornum. And uh, he, very rich, very rich. At 19, she marries the nephew of the legal guardian. And he initiated, like the legal guardian initiated the match and the very, all caps, large incentive that came with it because we did dowries at the time. Mm -hmm. So Tornum is now putting all his eggs in one basket. Okay. All of them because he disinherits all of his other nieces and nephews, except for Jean and her husband. And his name is Charles. <clears throat> so they would go on to inherit an estate, which conveniently was situated on the edge of the Royal hunting grounds mm. and like a million billion gajillion dollars. Um, Charles fell in love with Jean fast when they were married, like would do anything for her. And anyone who wants to get a dog, don't. So <laughs> telling you. Oh, real um, quick before we move forward. Are you like tapping the table? It's like making a sound like your no, microphone. I'm not. Like, are you like, okay. No. Okay. Why does it sound like I am? It does, like, not right now, but when you're, like, talking, it sounds oh. like you're, like, somebody's hitting the mic. Oh, that's weird. I'm not even touching the mic. Okay. I continue. Oh, my gosh. Okay, now I'm nervous. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, like I said, he falls super head over heels in love with her, and she's like, yeah, I mean you're all right and stuff and I'll stay married to you but like if the king wants me I'll leave you which I mean I guess is good like to tell him up front <laughs> I guess so it's interesting though that she was being groomed for that specific purpose and they got married off well I wonder if it was so uh, we'll we'll skip a little ahead just so it kind of makes sense so he had a mistress at the time Okay. So it was kind of one of those things is like, they're telling her like, yeah, we're grooming you for this. And you know, this fortune teller sa said this or whatever, but I think it was more to give her like something to fall back on in the event that that didn't come true. I see. Yeah. So she was just I mean, waiting for her ideal role to open up. Correct. Yes. Like as we all are in corporate America. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> So it was kind of sad and by kind, I mean, really sad. So be while they're married, uh, they have two children. Unfortunately, one died in infancy and one died at the age of nine. So, and that was all that she, like, she was like, I'm not doing this anymore. 
So because of her marital, and this also plays a part in why she got married, because when you're married or have a marital, or if you gain status from being married, you gain more respect in society and therefore you get invited to more things and therefore there's more of a chance to meet the king Uh, so because of her marital status she was able to attend salons which my understanding i equate it to like a party Mm -hmm. um but like a place specifically for parties not like your house that's that's like too too peasanty you have to have a party (laughs) elsewhere so um she's how she's going to these salons in Paris and she was able to cross paths with like so many people from the enlightenment period, like Voltaire. Yeah. I was going to say, is it like those intellectual salons yes. that got really popular? Yeah. Yes. Okay. And she's like BFFs with Voltaire. Like we'll get to it, but like, he makes a legit, like broke my heart comment about when she dies. Like BFFs Voltaire. So now that she's gone to these salons and she's made these connections and she has all this, you know, buku money because of her guardian, uh, she decides to create her own salon and all these elite people are attending, which is how she is able to hone her craft of conversating and like being super smart and witty. Um, And these are things that she'll be known for while she's at Versailles. So due to her involvement, um, obviously, and she was beautiful, uh, Louis XV heard of her. Uh, I guess a lot of people at court were mentioning her like on the daily. And he heard of her as early as 1742. So if we do some quick mental math, that's about, she was about 20. Mm -hmm by this time. Um, in 1744, so two years later, she decides, okay, I am fully prepared and this is my time to shine to meet this king. And she wants to catch his eye. So she says, well, I have this estate that is right smack dab conveniently next to the hunting grounds. So because she lived so close she was given permission to follow the hunt from a distance not quite sure what that has to like I don't I don't know like how that worked like you just lived next door so now you get to watch the king hunt (laughs) me I'd be like aren't you worried about his safety she could be crazy I don't know so that's just me but uh like a badass boss babe she is she's like (laughs) boy you're gonna know who I am I am not subtle so she drives directly into the king's path multiple times in multiple different dresses so she like does it once leaves changes does it again changes does it again changes She's like, like, you're going to know me, bitch. <laughs> like, damn, we need to revoke this permission that she has. Yeah, for real. Like, put up a gate. So, like I said, he had a mistress at the time. Her name was Madame de Chateau. Chateau. Um, and she l- literally warned Louis, was like, boy, do not even go near Jean. Don't go near her. She's insane. 
But unfortunately for her, there's a vacancy in the mistress department because unfortunately she dies. Oh, um, December 8th, 1744. So, and my thinking, like we've all learned about mistresses a couple weeks ago where I told you they're, you know, they're confidants, like a lot of Kings actually take more, um, of what the mistress has to say versus literally anyone in their court. Like they trust them more. Louie apparently she must've been good in bed and that was it because he did not trust a single thing she said. And on February 24th, so less than two months later, Jean receives a formal invitation from the King to attend a mask ball the next night in Versailles. Oh, romantic, a masked ball. Yes. But this I'm is like a Disney like, movie now. Yeah. But with mistresses. Yeah. <laughs> like, what would happen if the princess didn't get the king? So, <laughs> I just can't. This is where it gets safe and crazy. So, he took the time. Now, mind you, again, we learned he has a queen. He has a family. This is a ball where like everybody is like his court, his family, his, his wife. He takes the time at this ball to publicly declare his affection for Jean. Excuse me. Emphasis on the publicly. Well, that's bold. That's almost as bold as her running in front of him with a bunch of dresses on they're they're match made in, in heaven extra bold because he does it in front of everyone unmasked oh yes and so as a reference to their encounter during the hunt i'm gonna throw a picture in here because i it, like i was kind of confusing to me but she was um dressed as diana the huntress because they met while he was on a hunt oh like officially like she's he first saw her while he yeah I was like okay okay girl so by March so this all happened in February the end of February like February 25th by like the beginning of March she is the king's mistress and is installed at Versailles in an apartment directly above his it took her less than a month. Her poor husband. Oh, we get there because by May, <laughs> she is officially announcing her separation from Charles. Oh. Yeah. Which, I mean, to be fair, she did tell him up front, like, I won't leave you for anyone else but the king. Here we are. The king is calling, boy. You're on the curb. That's fair. She showed her cards at the beginning. Yeah, I feel like if you're truthful, this is, this is why honesty is important. Honesty is important because he should not have expected anything else. So not that I'm saying cheating is okay. Cheating is not okay. But if you're honest about it and you and your partner are on the same page, you do you. I'm not going to Yeah, I don't you. know if you call this cheating because she was like, look, here's the deal. This is like what I'm meant to do. And I will leave you immediately for the king. Correct. 
in order to be present at court. So to like be there, attend all the, the shindigs, be able to give your opinion, all this good stuff. She has to have a title, which she does not have at this time. So he says, don't worry, babe, I got you. I got bukus of money because we're taxing the people of France. So he purchases the Marquisate, which that also could be pronounced wrong. So I apologize, of Pompadour on June 24th. So they officially meet like, so she officially comes and gets invited to court February. By March, she's moved in. By May, she's divorced, basically. And then by June, he's bought her an estate so she can have a title. Living the dream, really. Yeah, like, sign, like let me go back. Let me get Louis the 15th. It's fine. <laughs> so he gave her the estate, the title, and the coat of arms, making her a marquise. Seven, uh, by September of 1745, so that was in June, this is now September, she is officially making her entry in front of the king as Madame de Pompadour. So now we officially have Madame de Pompadour. She's determined to secure her place in court. How do we secure our, go- our place in court? We make friends with the wife. Okay. I thought you were going to ask me and I was like, I literally have no idea. I just told a story (laughs) about glass. So no, we make friends with the wife. That's how we secure our place in court as a Royal mistress. So she goes out of her way and is working towards having a good relationship with his family. And I'm like, you know what? This is I don't know how we got from there as a culture to here as a culture because I, I don't understand. (laughs) Like, I I really would like to understand like what, what happened. So I need to find that. That might be our next story. Um, but I guess the two women, so the queen and Jean had a mutual acquaintance. One day the queen says, like by chance. Hey girl, how's such and such person doing? They have a small conversation and Jean is like, oh my God, I fucking love you. I respect and I am swearing my loyalty to you. And now the queen's like, yeah, bitch, bet. And now they're friends. (laughs) Was the uh, mutual acquaintance uh, King Louis? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but she actually goes on. So the queen goes on to litter. Uh, she favors John, like John be in front, uh, blah, 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 all the words. Favors John above any of the other mistresses King Louis ever has or had. So they're like besties. So, yeah, I mean, as bestie as you can get with someone who's sleeping with your husband. Fair. So... Now she goes on to hold her position as the court favorite because not only does she have the backing of the king, but now she's got the backing of the queen. So everybody better watch out. 
she wields a considerable amount of power and influence. And she was elevated on October 12, 1752. So we go from September 1745. She like is BFFs with, or I'm sorry, she makes her formal entry as Madame de Pompadour. And then October 12, 1752, she gets elevated to Duchess. What? Yes. And then in 1756, so only four years later, she's elevated even further to lady in waiting to the queen, which you're like, so she goes from a duchess to like waiting on the queen. And that's what I thought too. But apparently this is the most noble rank possible for a warm woman at court. Oh, so she like reached the, the pinnacle. Well, and I think it says a lot too, that she go like, not only is she like sleeping with the king, but the queen's like, yeah, that's fine. Like we can be besties and you can help me dress and, and stuff. I'm just like, you're a better woman than me. Let me tell you. Well, <laughs> I think we're all so, thinking that, but <laughs> yeah. So she plays the role of prime minister at one point. Becoming responsible for appointing advancements, favors, and dismissals, as well as contributing in domestic and foreign politics. That's really incredible that she was able to navigate to that point of political power, because that's that's important. That's huge. Yes. And she actually, um, in 1755, was approached by a prominent Austrian diplomat asking her specifically to intervene in the negotiations which led to the Treaty of Versailles. So she was basically like the deciding factor almost of France either being a part of or not being a part of the Treaty of Versailles. That's but crazy that a mistress it, was. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm just no, 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 wrap no, my head around no. That. Say what you have to say. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just saying that's crazy to think that like somebody who was groomed to be a mistress ends up being this big political game changer. But sorry, continue. Well, and that's that's important thing to note. I think is like that's the purpose of the grooming is because at the end of the day, like a king, I mean, yeah, he wants like a sexual release or I don't know, whatever the hell he wants a mistress for, but he also wants somebody that he can trust. And he knows that they have their best interest at heart and can confide in. And I don't know about you, but like, if I can't talk to someone and we have roughly the same comprehension skills, and that's not knocking any, I mean, I'm probably dumb to some people like I'm there's, you know, like a ton of people have a higher IQ than me. I'm sure you do, but if we can't comprehend the same things, it's very hard to talk to someone and therefore you like kind of lose interest. So that was the whole point of all of that was for her to be able to get to that place. And he's just using her to his advantage, which I think is probably the smartest thing he's ever done at this point. But Whitley, but so France, so they, okay. So they do this treaty of Versailles, but I don't, and I want 
this is something I'm going to talk about because I don't think a lot of us really understand the Treaty of Versailles very well. I didn't because I guess this treaty led to so many changes and alliances. It actually led to the Seven Years War, which was mainly, I mean, the two biggest people or countries in that war were France and Britain. Um, at least that's my understanding. So France emerges from the war diminished and virtually bankrupt. And Britain's victory in the war allowed it to surpass France as the leading colonial power. And this was commonly blamed on her because she allowed France to sign the Treaty of Versailles. But she didn't care. She did not care. She's like, first of all, how effing dare you try to blame that on me? Like maybe if your army would have fought, I don't know. I don't know if she said that. <laughs> so anyway, um, but she supported ministers like uh, Burton and Michelle. These two, I had a lot, a, a lot of hard trouble with pronouncing. Um, but they introduced fiscal and economic reforms, which led to France becoming the richest nation in the world all because oh, wow. she backed them and said no Louis let them be there and do their due and they will get it done and they did so as she's wielding her sword of influence um she not only was a sexual partner to the king, but she was able, like I said, to do all this because she was a friend and confidant. Unlike previous mistresses, she did something different. She made herself invaluable to the king by becoming the only person whom he trusted who could be counted on to tell him the truth. And let me tell you, it all comes back to honesty. So he was prone to becoming uh, melancholy or prone to melancholy and boredom. And so she was a comfort to him and would, you know, crack jokes and they would go do random shit together. And she was down to go hunting with him. So he was able to kind of just like relax around her. And if he was feeling bad, like she helped him through that. Around 1750, though, her role as friend became her solitary role, and their sexual relationship ceased. This is mainly, uh, I'm sorry, this is in part due to her poor health. So she actually suffered the after effects of whooping cough, recurring colds and bronchitis, spitting blood headaches, three miscarriages just to the king. So that means she's had at least five miscarriages as, as well as an unconfired case of leucorrhea, which is an abnormal amount of vaginal discharge that you just like, can't stop kind of is how I, how I understood it when I read it. Cause I was like, I have no idea what this is. 
She also, (laughs) on top of this, admitted to have, quote, the misfortune to be of a very cold temperament, end quote. Literally, that means I have a headache. I'm not in the mood every night. Oh, gotcha. And it was very, and she had like kind of, and not even to use that as an excuse. Like, first of all, she had headaches, but second of all, she she had like a very low libido. Mm-hmm. And so in order to increase her libido, she put herself on a diet of truffles, celery, and vanilla, which spoiler alert, very unsuccessful. <laughs> Don't try this at home. So in 1750, so now, which is the same year that they stopped like doing the do, um, it was the Jubilee year. So I don't know if you know about the Jubilee, but I did not. Basically, every 50 years is a Jubilee year. And they use it as a way to kind of like get rid of the past, cleanse yourself of sins and make good choices and start fresh for the next 50. Literally, it's like confession for Catholics. Like you go you say the bad things you do. They give you like 15 Hail Marys. You do them. And now all of a sudden you're cleansed of sin and you can leave and go do more sin. That's what Jubilee is. Except only like, 50, every 50 years. <laughs> yeah. Only you have to literally visit a priest every 50 years. So, which is about how often Catholics go to confession. <laughs> but anyway, that's a different story. Um, so the Jubilee year comes. And it placed a lot of pressure on the king to repent his sins. His biggest sin, he has a mistress. Mm. So they're like, you have to get rid of her. You have to get rid of her. You're this, we're jubileeing. Okay. So he says, guys, she, she's not my royal mistress. She's just friend of the king. That was her new title, friend, friend of the king. So she could stay around which was fair because they're not even having sex anymore. So she literally was just his friend, but they changed her whole title just so she could stay. So she, that like is truly a testament to the impact that she had. He was, she was so important to him. So a misconception, because you know, we don't have enough drama going on is that she supplemented her role as mistress because she's you know, low libido. She has all these health issues going on that she went and employed replacement lovers for the King. This is fake news and very false. She did not do that. What happened was he did this on his own, which the queen and, and Jean were like, Hey, that's fine. Neither of us want to do it with you. So go ahead. (laughs) And he would only entertain one woman at a time because part of the misconception was that it was multiple women that she was getting and taking to him. Like that wasn't the case. She showed up maybe once or twice, like to be like, Hey, what's going on? Oh, never mind. Bye. She did not hire these people just so we're all clear. Um, But to go back to her training and her teaching and her education, she was an influential patron of the arts and played a central role in making Paris the perceived capital of taste and culture in Europe. So that's why France is like France. 
is because of her. Like bringing all the art and making it like this super culturally like exquisite place. Um, and she actually herself participated in painting and engraving and would put that up like in museums and all like just next to the famous painters of the time. Famous painters and Madame de Pompadour, a, a royal mistress. <laughs> I actually love that. <laughs> yeah, it was insane. And she um, she also participated in the culture by becoming an acclaimed stage actress. So she was doing everything. Like causing or stopping wars during the day and playing a play at night. Hey, you got to have some side gigs. <laughs> Q, I'm every woman because that's her. He remains devoted to her. But unfortunately, she dies in 1764 at age 42 of tuberculosis. Mm. He even which this like warmed my heart and gives me chills right now. He loved her so much. He nursed her through her illness. And I don't know about you, but like, I do not picture any type of royalty nursing someone. I picture them like giving it to their servants and being like, take care of such and such person. So for him to do that really shows like the connection they had and the love he had for her. So as I mentioned before, Voltaire had something to say about her dying and he wrote quote I am very sad at the death of Madame de Pompadour I was indebted to her and I mourn her out of gratitude it seems absurd that while an ancient pen pusher hardly able to walk should still be alive a beautiful woman in the midst of a splendid career should die at the age of 42 end quote 